A founder investor relationship is like a marriage. Hopefully you're both sticking to each other through the thick and thin for years to come. Find the right partner in crafting this lasting relationship is no easy task. That's why we called founders and investors to share their experiences during this year's of Almost Let Them Summit. By the way, you can already click the link in the description to, to pre-register for our next incredible edition. In this episode, Kumbuka's founder, Daniel Ruman, and the investors, Jonathan Levy from Investo and Mercedes-Benz from Lightspeed Venture Partners, talk about how investor relationships changed in the past years. The signs of a good and a bad partner, no matter if you're a founder or an investor. How startups can differentiate themselves from competitors and how founders can sell the value prop to investors. My name is Brian Reckworth. This is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. So welcome. We, we're going to speak about the relationship between uh, founders and, uh, and investors. So um, myself, I've been doing a bit both. So I have a fund called Investo and we've invested in more than a hundred companies. So I've seen almost everything that can go right, but also a lot of things that can go wrong. Um, and I'm also a founder. So my, my last company that was here in Brazil was Green, the scooters. Um, and now I just launched a new company uh, called Angstroms. Um, but the idea here is to present our panel. So we have Mercedes uh, from uh, Lightspeed and Danny, and maybe we're going to start with Mercedes to present herself and her fund. Well, great to meet everyone. Thank you so much for coming and attending today. My name is Mercedes Bent or Mercedes Bent, and I've been at Lightspeed for four years now. I co-lead our Latin America investing. And prior to this, I spent the early part of my careers at our central bank in the U.S., the Federal Reserve, and I also used to work at Goldman Sachs. And then I spent 10 years as an operator, started companies, worked at companies that sold, and I'm excited to be investing in our first company in Brazil. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, my name is Daniel. Um, I've been a full-time entrepreneur for the last five years, I believe. Dropped out of college, and I've been full-time in this life since. Uh, met Mercedes earlier this year. We're doing some really cool things together. And if you don't know Kombuka, we're building a really new thing. We're building an asset light software layer that lives on top of your bank accounts and will enable a new way for you to share expenses, split money, and, you know, talk and manage cash and, you know, your financial life for the people that matter for you. Amazing. So the first thing is like um, understanding the relationship between founders and investors um, is a little bit like I, I, I like when I speak with founders to make the parallel with your personal life. Um, choosing a partner in life is, is very similar. And I don't think there are like good investor or bad investor. It's all a matter of the good fit, like finding the perfect fit for yourself. Um, of course, there are some bad actors, you know, in the ecosystem. Usually they don't last for, for, for long. But what's important is, is finding the time. Like I always say to fathers, you don't go to a bar and get out married, you know, like it takes a bit of time of knowing each other. Um, and I think that in, in, in investing, it's pretty much the same. I don't know what you think about that, Mercedes, or what's your stake on that? Yeah, I do agree. Investing and is, is like signing up for marriages. I mean, you're on these 10-year journeys that if they go right, you know, they're a little bit shorter if they don't work out. But they're really difficult in terms of the hard conversations that you have to have and th if things don't go well. And then 
just knowing that you're going to be with this person every day. They are somebody that actually is very difficult to get rid of. I think people underappreciate this element, but it's actually hard to get an investor off your board and off your cap table. I actually always say that it's easier to get a divorce in your personal life than actually get rid of an investor in a company. Definitely. No, I, I certainly think that's the case. And so I'm always thinking a lot, you know, 2021 was really hard because it was shotgun weddings everywhere. It was, I've met you two days later, where's the term sheet? Get in or get out. And it was so like, how can we be making decisions this way? This makes no sense. But obviously, like it was a, a different market time. And I think that's one of the things I've most enjoyed about 2023 is the ability to get to know people over longer periods of time. Ours actually wasn't that long, but there are some founders where I can think of two in my portfolio where I got to know them over a year, a year and a half, two years before we ever signed. Uh, there's always love on the first sight, but what made you know, like when did you know that Mercedes was the one? Perfect. So um, when I met Mercedes, I had had about 100 investment, like fundraising calls. Up to 100. Yeah, 100. What had no? We had a few term sheets, but mostly no's. And um, she was the first person that got it. You know, like she really understood what we're building. I think it was like in the first one, the second chat, she described it in English. Like I'm used to pitching in Portuguese. She described it in English in a way that would be like 10x what I'd be able to do myself. And she was really fast. And from that point on, I think what I valued a lot was the way she directed the process, right? So for example, I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm an introvert. I'm not good with like thousands of calls and videos. So I did a whole data room. I did memos. I had numbers. I had thesis. I had spreadsheets. I had everything. She was the first one that actually went through it all. And she asked me like really good questions about it, like smart questions about it, you know? She understood my market. And I think it was like a one-month period while we got to know ourselves, like each other very intensely. And she was really honest and really fair. I think, like, for example, she was one of the only investors. I think there was only one other investor that went asked me for references, also gave references about themselves and different things like that. We had one of the things I was mentioning beforehand, we had SVB fail while we were in the process of raising with Mercedes. We still didn't have a term sheet at that point. And, you know, we had an account in SVB. We weren't very much affected, but definitely lots of portfolio companies were. And I remember how she was dealing with all of that. And that was, that earned a lot of respect, you know, because it's really good to see someone like your partner. Like you said, we're, we're going to be doing this for way more than 10 years. I hope you know that. So um, it's really, long marriage. it's really good to see how, how they, how they act when, you know, something as bad as what happened with, with SVD happens. And you were serious, like, what was the moment that you knew that, okay, I'm ready to to offer to make a demonstration. It was over a series of calls. I think one of the things that we have a lot of things that we look for in founders. And one of the things we look for is this ability to zoom in and zoom out, which is what we call the ability to go very in depth about specific topics, have the credibility that you can actually describe the, how it works and the breadth of being able to go far and wide. I mean, just before this conversation, Danny was describing how weather reports and are calculated. I'm like, the kid, the guy knows about a lot of stuff. Sorry, I almost said kid. The guy knows about a lot of stuff. And I'm always just like, how does he know so many things? And I think just the 
knowledge of kind of that breadth, but it obviously this relates to the company as well. I think there were other couple of other things that were very impressive. Obviously, he's the youngest person in the country to receive the banking license that he did, which is super impressive. Like everyone should give Danny a round of applause for that. <laughs> Thank you. And I think also, you know, there was a lot of impressive things around the vision. Like we, there's where a business starts today and then it's where it's going. And what we saw was actually the business today is not what we're investing in at all. I think what Kumbuka is today is exciting and good, but the broader vision he was able to describe is much, much, much more exciting. And his ability to credibly draw the line of this is the wedge, this is where we start, and here's all the steps it's going to take to get there is was actually really rare. A lot of people can describe a big vision and they have a hard time describing how they'll get there. And so that really, really impressed me. Interesting. I think that also what's very interesting is like, and for people here that wants to fundraise is the ability of storytelling and be able not just to say where you want to be, but how you're going to get there makes a big difference. But see this, what's something that happens, you know, when people are pitching you and you feel like, okay, they lost me. Like, is there something that's repeating happened to you? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, one of the things I like to do as an investor is always the kind of the time test. It's a clock thing where as the pitch is going on, like how long until I'm thinking about when is the next call and I find myself looking at the clock a lot. At that point, you've already lost me emotionally. I mean, the goal of a pitch is to emotionally hijack the investor for a period of time and kind of get them totally lost and immersed in what you're describing, the vision of the future world you will build that nobody else yet knows is coming. And so that is kind of, you know, what I'm always looking for that feeling in terms of myself to know, okay, this is leaning in. And then there's also an elongated time test, which is a bit more of that was one interaction. One interaction can blow you away, but what about many times and many instances of it? And so things that kind of throw me off and make me kind of like unpleasant is one, like I'm losing interest, but two, also anytime there's bluffs and you catch somebody in their bluff, it's like, oh, these numbers don't make sense together. And then there's flustered, they're like, oh, it didn't work. Or even bluffs about like the timing of the process and the deal, you know, like this is when the term sheet is going to be here or the term sheets are already here and investors all know each other if they ever ask, which they don't normally want to do, but if they do and that falls apart, I think those are some of them. Anytime there's an integrity issue, that's really, really a bad sign as well. Yeah, I have something similar when I invest, which is like, if that person would call me a Saturday at 10 p.m., would I say like, oh, great, I I want to talk to them or, oh no, I'm going to just, you know, hang, you know, like, because at the end, like we mentioned, it's a more than 10 year relationship where you want to build that kind of relationship where you, you want to talk. I, I want to be the person when I invest that people would call, but also, um, if I'm the founder, like who I would call, you know, as an investor, um, coming back to you again, like you were mentioning hundred calls, hundred, uh, pitch. How did you cope with the with the no? You know, like it's 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 a number of games. You pitch a lot of things. Like your moral, like your stamina. Like how do you react to that? Okay, so I, I don't know if I'm the best benchmark on that, but um, I'm very stubborn. Like uh, as a founder, I think you need to be. Yeah, you have to be relentless, right? And there's like multiple kinds of getting a no. And I guess when I was in my process, what got me very frustrated 
was that most no's were non-constructive. Like I, I thought that they were saying no because they didn't really understood what I was saying. I had a few ones that were very constructive and being completely honest, like those were really good. Those were great feedback. They were structured. They had a reason. They had a point. They had an idea. They wanted to keep in touch. Like they looked into the business. But for most of them, like I did 100 calls. It was, it's a lot. Like let's say I had 10 good no's and I had 80 bad no's. For the 80 bad no's, you just got to put that aside. Like don't give two more seconds of thought into that because they really were the partners we're looking for. You know, and I guess that that, that would have hurt me a lot more if I had a no from her after we had like half the good calls, <laughs> then it would be hard because we hit it off and I was like, okay, I want them. So that, that would be important. And was there a moment where you were kind of losing trust in yourself or do you feel like you were um, questioning like uh, how to continue? That always happens a bit at night, right? Like there's the, there's the saying that I really like that's like a... Entrepreneurship is like a, what's the, it's like, it's like you're bipolar, you know, it's like you have the highest highs and you have the lowest lows and that happens. And kind of like our job is not let the lowest lows get us and enjoy the highest highs when we have it, right? Amen to that. <laughs> Amen to that. And also uh, partners, team members, co-founders, that's. Core. And, 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 and actually, that's, in my opinion, also something very important to expect from an investor. Like, again, be there, being like knowing that you can be transparent, honest, and talk to your investor about those lows is something completely uh, can help a founder, especially because found, like, investors usually have seen a lot of situations, similar situations, and can actually be helpful. And what you said about, you know, you know, investors are professional bluff detectors. That's what they do all day young. So don't try to, to bluff somebody that actually is paid to detect that. So that's sometimes when I see to founders, like they try to, to, to bluff. And for you, Mercedes, like, how do you, like, by essential as an investor, you will see tons of founders, a lot of projects, often very good, but at the end, you cannot invest in all of them. So how do you deal with having to say no to probably great projects, great founders? How do you manage that? There's the way I hope to deal with it. And then there's the way I probably, unfortunately, sometimes deal with it. I'd say, so there's, yeah, I mean, we're meeting, I do about 15 new pitch calls per week. And so that's, you know, 16 a month. And if you keep going on and on. It's just, it's, it adds up a lot of calls. And the fast no's, I think, are one of the more respectful things that you can do. So I try and always be fast. But of course, you know, I also have 10 portfolio companies. And so you get overloaded with things. I think generally we try and be fast. We try and be clear and as much information as we can give that we don't think will be hurtful because unfortunately some a lot of the time you're passing it's not something you would want to say to the founder it might be something about them that is not actually a global you know kind of representation of who they are but it's a personal preference for the type of thing that you're looking for as an investor and so to share you know that i don't think it's actually productive or useful so I'm always just trying to share what is there about the business 
What is there about the thesis, the market that is maybe actionable? And that will be what I share. And I also, of course, share, you know, here's the things that we did like about it and that we would want to see more of. Um, so, yeah, our goal is always to try and get back in a week and do so quickly. In the beginning, when I first started investing, this was something that used to really tear on me because it was like, I used to be a founder. I used to be on the operator side. It sucks to have to say no over and over and over again. But I think actually being just a little bit removed and the volume of doing it now, it's, you know, you can just do it faster and faster and faster. So what was like your worst experience fundraising? Ooh, that's a hard question. Just forget they are here. Like we, yeah, yeah, we're family, family, three friends, you know, perfect. Um, so there were two, two different ones. First ones, uh, there was this one person that did not understand anything about Brazilian financial system, like anything. And my business is a hundred percent on that. Like, uh, we've got a license, we've built an association, like regulation is our thing. So right? they hadn't heard of picks. They hadn't heard of things. Oh my God. They did not know how it worked. And like 80% of the bitch was doing that basic explanation, right? And so that was very hard because, you know, it's almost like you're trying to, I don't know, like you're pitching a notebook to someone and they don't know what paper is. Like it's, it was really, really frustrating. And then on the other hand, there is the, like if you're doing a fintech in Latin, in, especially in Brazil and especially B2C, you're definitely going to get the question why, uh, what happens when new bank does that, right? It's not if, it's when. They always ask that. That's like the standard question. And I had a really good answer for it. Like, that's one of the things I prepared myself the most for. And it's not like, I didn't say it was, it wasn't an answer, like 30 second answer. I was like, okay, you want to know that? Let me give you the strategy. Let's see, like, how, how does that add up and how did that grows over the future? And there was this one person that just simply did not believe that. And she left the meeting telling me like straight to my face that you're going to be dead in two years. No bank's going to do that. And I don't know what you're doing that. Like she honestly looked at me and she was like, you should do something better with your time. And that's really hard to hear. That's really hard. I know she, she definitely felt like she was saying the best thing for me. Probably thought she was giving me great advice or something like that. And I want to hear the hard things. Like that's one of the things that I love about Mercedes is like, um, like we're building something together for a long, long time. We're building something that should be world-class. Like we're doing something to be the first. We're doing something to be huge. And the bar should be really, really high. And so you need to hear hard things. You need to hear bad things. Like that's, that's part of what I expect from Mercedes is to tell me the hard truths and be like, I expect more from you. Because that should be it. You should keep expecting more from me constantly. But when that feedback comes in a way that's more like, go and do something else with your life instead of like iterate, Instead of like, let's try it differently, let's try harder. When, when the feedback comes in a way that's like, it's just completely negative. You know, it's like a, a black bulb of like hopelessness. They'll just talk to you and they're like, yeah, don't believe that. You're not doing something with your life. If I were you, there's this one person that said, if I were you, I'd go back to college. That hurts. That is so rude. I mean, this is why I said like, we don't write, we, we don't say things like that typically. At least, I don't know, I can't speak for all of my colleagues, but. I think the thing is you actually have to have a great level of trust and care with somebody to deliver any feedback that could be construed as negative or, you know, constructive on the downside of something personally about them. And so given you've only had one interaction, you, you know, almost by definition, you don't have a, de a deep relationship. So you are not qualified to be able to give that person 
feedback that is negative about themselves. It just, it won't land and it won't, it, the context of it, why, why did that person say that to you? Like they probably actually have a very long experience. Definitely. And made them say that, but they can't communicate it in the length of a 30 or 45 minute pitch. And so. Yeah. I really uh, don't see the point of doing that. Like, as <laughs> there's, a, like, no like there's, there's no reason doing that. Um, and I feel for you because it's, it's something that must be, you know, what the fuck was he doing there? Um, again, like, I think that's, it's, I agree with you. Like, uh, the fastest you can say no and, and, and the, and in very short, giving that kind of feedback if it's someone if you work if it's a portfolio company and you say okay this is not going anywhere then it makes more sense at least to be you know you are you're in the same boat but not in the yeah. pitching so you said two what's the second one? Oh no that was uh, uh, okay the first one was one the other one was go back to college okay um so mercedes like how do you like to work with portfolio companies so once okay we invested um like what's what what kind of relation do you like to have with founders? How do you see yourself working? What's a typical day to day when you have a, a company or portfolio? I think one of the core tenants is I'm not their boss. And so some people it's very confusing to me, but they they treat their board like their boss. It's not we're all equal share well, not all equal, actually. The founder has a lot more <laughs> shares than we do. So we're we're partners, you know, and where our, I view my role more so as a coach to guide for the broader kind of, con, of parameters of what I understand success to look like and then hope to point the person towards that. So for example, some of the early conversations that Daniel and I had were around what the bar should be, that's what he was just saying earlier in terms of what should the bar be on talent? Because I really truly believe like a very small change and your nose for a talent for really tr truly understanding what is AAA talent and how what you need to do to bring them on board at the seed stage, you compound that over five years, and you will have a completely different company than what you would have had without it. And it's a it's a really small kind of conversation. It wasn't like oh we have to spend hours and hours and hours and hours talking about it. It's like okay, let me introduce you to some people who I think are the world class best in this field, this field, and this field. So that then you know, basically nothing less will work <laughs> in terms of where you're trying to get. And there have been a couple of times where you came back and you said, okay, I'm looking at recruiting, you know, this person. And I said, I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, like, can you get them right now? Of course you can get them. But like, is that who you should try to get? I don't know. So that's like one way, I think. And then also just, you know, what Danny also said earlier, like as a founder, the and highs are extremely high. The lows are extremely low. And so I think part of our job is also to be a bit of a barometer of making that emotional median a little bit more stable. So if somebody is super excited about things, I'm, of course, I'm excited about it too. But I'm also going to say like, okay, so what do we need to do next? Like, let's focus. Play the devil's advocate. Yeah, play the devil's advocate a bit of like, well, if things are awful, and you're crying, like, it's like, okay, well, things are probably not that bad. Like, let's, you know, get back to, get back to work. And so that's really the, the role I view is more as a mirror, a coach, and kind of like, you know, when you play bowling, like the, what do you call those things? The guardrails. So you can't go out. Um, that's, that's bowling for the kids. <laughs> bowling for kids. Exactly. Well, but you know, the startup is a baby. It's a baby organization in search of a business model. And so actually having some, 
kind of boundaries is really helpful for the startup to be able to grow. So let's go back one second to, to the term sheet. So finally, they say yes. Um, did you negotiate the term sheet? Like, oh, yeah. I negotiated it. And how did, like, is it something that you like to negotiate with founders or? I mean, if they didn't negotiate, I would be like, oh, this like, is an awful investment. Um, no one's never not negotiated a term sheet I've given them. So I would fully expect that. And then there is a point at which we're negotiating, negotiating. And I think I said this, I'm like, this is getting annoying. This is where it needs to stop. <laughs> and that was the perfect, like, that was a perfect benchmark for like, okay, that's a really good relationship for us to have. Like, because I negotiated other term sheets and that's, I never got a message like hers, which was perfect. That's when we stopped, actually. It was good for both of us. Yeah. yeah I agree. Like, uh, a founder that done the, do not negotiate, then it's probably not a great founder because he doesn't try it. But also, and that's what I usually say to founders that don't over-negotiate because that's going to be the relationship you're going to build for the next 10 years. So you don't want to get into like kind of situation where it's going to be something that's going to follow for the rest of the life of the company. A good negotiation is one where no one gets exactly what they want. Both parties are a little annoyed and mad by the end of it, but it's fair. And so I know when I'm reaching that point. And so I just tell the other person that. And then, you know, that's the kind of, at least on my side, like the hard line in the sand. And, it, and it, it's somebody who respects that and they know they are trying to build a tenure relationship together, then they're probably going to be at the same place too. So you mentioned that you have 10 companies in your portfolio. How do you see yourself in the next five years? Like how many companies do you think you can manage in a portfolio? Um, depending obviously how you get involved in the company. Um, I'm pretty, well, you should ask Danny how involved I am with the company, but I, I'm, we're always in touch like every few days on WhatsApp and we're always having calls. So I think in terms of like, what's like board load capacity, you know, senior, senior investors who've been in the game for 25 years tend to have around like for the type of investing I do. So also I should clarify because there's many styles of investing, but the style of investing we do is very concentrated relatively in terms of high ownership. We're often taking a board seat. There is no board for Kumbuka right now, so I'm not on a board. But even when we have no board, we think of ourselves in board capacity. If there's an issue with a company, it's our responsibility as well. If the company is going through hard times, needs to go through, you know, I have com two companies going through M&A right now. I'm on the phone with a with a founder every other day, like talking through like the depths of the details and the strategy. So it's it's more involved than say like, hey, I'm sending, giving a small check that's a follow on check. And, you know, someone else is the lead investor. And so given that, there's kind of a board capacity load question. And I think it's typically for the most senior VCs, like 20, you know, 15 to 20. But you have this natural attrition because of every two to three years, every fund cycle, really. And this is why fund cycles are kind of these two to three years is you're typically giving capital to the team for enough time for them to make it to the next kind of momentum and unlock. And so you know, two to three years runway is average. It's also the length of a fund. And so I have actually, right now, I started in venture four years ago. I have two companies winding down, two more that will probably wind down next year, two going through M&A, and 
I also have two companies fundraising and, you know, about to get markups right now. And so there's kind of this natural evolution where companies are always moving in and out. Okay. So you were asking something that, you know, like, like how do you like to work with investors? You no, know, like on your side, like what's, what do you expect from the investors? Yes, perfect. So um, I guess one of the things that's really important for founders and that's really hard, especially when you're in the early stages, is that like very important motto of never be the smartest person in the room, you know? And that's really hard where you're, you're in the early stage like place where, you know, we probably know most of the people you've hired, most of the people you don't have a lot of cash, you're not bringing people that had thousands of years of experience and things like that. And that's always something that I kind of looked up to investors in always, like from YC, from angels, from Latitude, et cetera. Like I've always looked up to them for being this like outside guiding voice. And I think that's was, that was one of the things that like struck us most. And like, for example, as she said, like we were like, okay, this is getting annoying. Let's stop negotiating. Because being completely honest, like I was choosing my partner a lot more than I was choosing a lot of the other terms. And um, what I expect is someone that's going to set my bar very high, that's going to keep pushing me further. As she said, like, she should be my partner and she sh she's here to help me. She's not my boss, but at the same time, she has a vested interest, interest in the company and in my, the company's success and in my success. So for example, one of the things that was really cool about Mercedes as well was that once we closed and we sat down to do like our first talks post-closing, she divided it up into like business growth and personal growth. And she talked about a lot about myself, like uh, how I should be as a founder, how I should look for talent, how my like reality distortion field should be in terms of convincing amazing people that were capable of doing crazy unthinkable things together. And that's what I expect. Like I need to be pushed forward. Uh, I don't like, I don't want to do just reporting. That's, that's simple. I have a dashboard for that. I, I can send an email every month. Like that's, that's okay. That's it. What I really expect is someone that pulls me forward and that makes me think in different ways, makes me look at different things. Like if you've done Latitude, if you've participated in any of the cohorts, or if you've been through YC, you've had that taste of like what world-class feels like. And world-class is not the standard in Brazil. It simply isn't. We have different players. We have outliers. But if you look like on a bar on a lot of things, from technology, engineering, product, company structuring, uh, suppliers, lots of things. There's a whole world out there. And like, if you're best here, that doesn't mean you're best in the world. That doesn't mean you're the best among all the best. And I think that's the, really the, hard to achieve, you know? I think it's, it's more like a goal than really getting there. Like, yeah. And I think that what I'm personally super thankful is that I've been lucky to meet people like later. And I recommend everybody to stay here at 5 p.m. because Sebastian is coming. But he has been an amazing mentor for me because I was lucky to invest early in Rappi. And, but I've learned so much from him and, 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 and Simon. Um, but that's what you say. Like you meet people that has super high standards, super ambitious, and that opens you the mind and, and, and you want to, you know, you want to know that. that. Yeah, exactly. And I agree with you. Uh, YC has that, you know. They put you in a room with so many, you know, motivated and hungry people. And, um, and most of them are very successful. So, uh, or the partners themselves, 
likewise in latitudes. Um, I've been lucky to be uh, mentoring. I think we yeah. had we had a, a few sessions together. Um, but what's great is putting those people together because that's how you create that kind of, uh, yes, momentum, uh, that can help you. Definitely. That's one of the really cool things about Lightspeed as well as a fund. Like uh, we were just talking earlier today about how we connected with some companies in Europe, some companies in India, like what we're doing. That's another one of the really cool things. Like you have the people, when I was pitching, you had the people that did not understand what Pix was. And then you had the whole opposite side, which was people that understood what Pix was. And they knew that it was inspired from UPI in India. And they did all the research and they were looking, okay, what similar effects is Pix going to have than they had in India? And that's mind-changing. Like that's, that's really, really cool. I'm looking very much forward to like going to India and do a whole benchmarking trip. And like that's kind of access, that's kind of people that's not easy to get. That's not like, you know, if, if you've done YC, you know what I'm talking about. It's that X times, you know, it's not local. It's not only Brazil. It's not only comparing myself against local peers and local benchmarks and things like that. It's like scratch borders, scratch geographies. We're building a business. We're building something that wants to be really, really, really huge and that will be here for a long, long time. If we want to do that in the best possible way, we need to aim as high as possible. And it's surprisingly not that easy to find people that push you forward and that aim high as high or higher than you. You know, something that Sebastian told me once is by being one of the early company with Rappi in the region, and they raised also one, they were the first investment in that time for many funds. I think Andres and Sequoia, like very early. And, um, but something that he said, which makes us a lot of sense, like they've opened the door, not only them, there are other companies as well, but like when they grow, like there is not even the talent that knows like the, you, you, you don't have access to talent in Latin America to bring the company to the next level. So you need to create it. Obviously, afterwards, when, when another company comes there, then there are ex rapid that you can hire that went through that. And that's, what we, that's how we build an ecosystem, you know? So that's thanks to some of those companies today, you can ask Mercedes to help you to hire the right person because there are actually people that ran through what you're going to go in the... Yeah, we, we stand on the shoulder of giants. Definitely. Like we're, we need to be very much thankful for everyone that came before us and hopefully help it make a little bit better for the ones that are coming after. And that's part of why at Lightspeed we're spending a lot of time in Brazil now is because I actually think Brazil is one of the only countries in Latin America that does have a long history of many generations of founders and talent to pull from. I'm not going to say it's like, you know, as, as mothers, but I would say like we, when we look, we were doing a lot of investing in Mexico, Colombia, Argentina, Brazil has by far the most generations of experienced founders. And those mafias are what create talent. Rappi is a great company and the Rappi mafia is huge. I've seen a lot of the Rappi mafia here today um, and yesterday. And, you know, they're all, there's tons of folks going on to start companies, but that's probably one of the first Com, you know, companies from Colombia that has that. And in Mexico, Mexico's pretty early, you know, like I am, I'm trying to think what I would call the Mexican uh, mafia in terms of the, We have a lot of company that came out of green also. Ah, okay. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, I think like there's just a lot of uh, depth of talent here, but at the same time, you're right. Like you need to think about how do you cultivate first more specific roles, for example, one of my companies in Mexico, they spend a lot of time cultivating credit and risk analyst 
which is something they don't find a lot of people who've been trained in it to the level that they want locally, but they hire people then just straight out of undergrad and they pair them with people in other countries to pick, to work together. And that's how they're, they've decided to kind of grow the talent base. And so I think it's, um, it's always the decision, but I think there's a lot of good talent starting to come out of Brazil. And I think also that what happened in 2021 with a lot of cars that came in also in a way created like lack of talent because everybody was hiring. But now, unfortunately, it's a lot of company had to fire. So there is more talent today. Some of them will become great founders because usually that's what's happening. You lose your job, so you need to find something. Um, but I think that the, in that aspect, the future of Lati LATAM is, is brighter than ever, you know, because we, we start having the density of people that has gone through different stages. Um, I know now it's a, it's a tough moment for LATAM. I think it's, it's difficult to raise and, and you know, the, the whole market contracted, but the future is, I think is going to be great and, and I think it's a it's probably one of the best moments today, in my opinion, to start a company. Actually, there is no pressure to grow too fast. There is still, like we see here, you know, it's a deal that was closed this year. So there is, there is still, in, you know, VC investing, founder raising. And actually, it's probably the best moment. Like some of the best company has been, you know, start, started in difficult moments. Um, so I encourage, you know, everyone to, to start now, not, not to wait. Um, we only have a few minutes. Uh, I don't know if uh, there's someone that has, maybe we have time for one or two questions. So I don't know if someone wants to ask something. Here's a question. Yeah. Come here. Thanks, Brian. Uh, I was a little bit curious about um, uh, the answer that they, the, the question that they made to you about Nubank or the other competitors that we have in Brazil. So what you, Daniel, have uh, responded to the question? Uh, what, how, how are you looking for the, the competitors that are uh, strong in Brazil? Yeah. Thank you so much for that question. I swear to God that was not planned and I do not know him. Appreciate that. It was a good answer. I remember I didn't ask that question, but it came about in a different way. Yeah. So the thing is that even though today Kumbuka has custody of people's monies, of people's cash, actually, um, that's not what we're building. We got a license from the central bank that's called Payment Initiation. We're the only pure B2C payment initiation company in the country. And what's actually going to happen is that we're not going to have people's money you're going to connect your bank account, your uh, Kumbuka account to your bank account, and we're going to pull money from that automatically. What does that mean? Uh, we're looking at multiplayer money, right? Our product grows by network effects. Multiple people need to use it. And if you're looking, for example, at a couple, you could say, okay, you're going to open a joint account and maybe like the couple can have the same bank. If you have friends, you know that like it's completely impossible for five of your friends to actually use the same bank. And so what actually gets to the bottom of it all is that if you're looking at like, especially B2C prepaid fintech in Brazil, this is not something that's one, um, sustainable, that's profitable, et cetera. And two, it's really, really hard to grow. Like you're not going to outspend all of these different players on marketing. You're not going to win the cock wars. 
right? So the only way to be- beat them is by not competing with them in some senses. And that's what we're doing. We don't want to be your bank. Uh, hopefully by middle to end next year, you'll be able to use Kumbuka with your money sitting in Nubank, in Caixa Econômica, in Banco do Brasil, or in any other cool fintech you want to use it. And yeah, we're, we're positioning ourselves in a whole different layer. We want to live on top of your bank accounts, not be one of them. I mean, everyone here already has a bank account and I'm pretty sure you're well suited on that end. So that's not my problem to solve. And just to break down his answer a little bit in terms of why it's a good one. So one of the things, if you're going to compete with a huge incumbent, compete on something that, as you mentioned, is like a different plane, a different level than where they are altogether, but also something that would break their model. How could Nubank work if they didn't have deposits and cash? Like it, It's just not fundamentally what the business is today. And so that is one important thing. The other thing that he said when I heard this answer is he's thinking of of a creating a new layer that doesn't exist today. And he's looking to do so. What you know, I said repeated back to him is you're looking to create a permissioned access layer of how other people can use each other's money on top of bank accounts. Like, does that exist today? No, but could we all imagine that maybe you would want to have a way where, you know, I tell my sister, hey, you can spend $500 from my bank account forever, like until you finish it up. Or you can spend $100 from my bank account this week and this week and this week. There's, you can imagine all sorts of, if you have this layer of permissions access, who can access your money, it could be different. And so when I heard this, I was like, oh, his vision of where he's going is much bigger and much differentiated than what maybe it feels like it looks like today. And so that's why I thought it was a pretty compelling answer. Yeah. And that's, that was the really hard part, like making people understand. And that's one of the really cool things. She understood it and asked good questions about it. Now I think you understand why I speak about a good uh, fit. You see, we can leave them here for another two days and they, con- they, they, they will continue talking about that. So, well, thank you so much. Uh, it's been amazing. I hope you guys also enjoy the, this panel. Um, and uh, th- thank you for your time. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Latitude, Brian. Thank everyone. Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.